Good morning. Our passage for today is from Galatians chapter 2, verse 11 to 21. So it'd be great if you can open up that in your Bible or in the service order. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, please help me to preach faithfully. Please help us, Father, to listen attentively and to be open to the work of the Spirit in our hearts. In Jesus' name we ask this, Lord. Amen. Now last week, we saw that Paul has gone to Jerusalem, bringing the gospel that he has been preaching with him to be presented to those in Jerusalem. Both those of influence and the pillars who were the apostles saw that it was the true gospel, and they welcomed him as a partner in ministry. So today, we continue the story as we come to to our passage in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, Cephas, that is the Aramaic name for the Apostle Peter, when he came to Antioch, he found that Paul opposed him to his face. And Paul said, Cephas stood condemned. Now, these are strong words to bring to the Apostle, who is often thought of as the leader of all the other Apostles, right? So what's going on? And we see a hint here that this is not personal, but is gospel-driven. Because when Paul talks of Peter, <coughs> when he calls him Peter, he is talking about him as an apostle who preached the gospel to the Jews. But here, when he is acting wrongly, he calls him Cephas. So I think Paul intentionally switched between these two names so that while he condemned Peter for the things that he did wrong, <coughs> excuse me, All right. so while he condemns Peter for the things that he is doing wrong, the reason he's doing it here is that he sees that it's for the gospel and he still respects him as an apostle. Now, we come to verse 12, where we see a hint of why he has such a strong response. Verse 12, For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So it seems that certain men came from James, that is, they come from Jerusalem as representative of the Jewish Christians. And now this group that came here, Paul names them the Circumcision Party. Peter had originally been eating with the Gentiles, now suddenly drew back from eating with them. And he separated himself from them because even though these are his Christian brothers, he was afraid of what the Circumcision Party would say about him. Now, the fact that these people come from Jerusalem, they're referred to as the Circumcision Party, it gives us a hint to what the problem is. It has something to do with Jews who are circumcised and Gentiles who are uncircumcised. So these circumcision party guys, they look like Christians. They're claiming to represent Christianity from Jerusalem. But they were false brothers who were trying to bring back people to the bondage of the law, which we saw last week. So, when Cephas see them, right, when he saw this strong pro-Jewish traditions group coming from Jerusalem, he became worried. What would they think of him? He who is eating with the uncircumcised, 
who is partaking in table fellowship where there's unclean food? And so he had doubts. Now, this exposes to us the unique situation here, right? So, the first believers were Jewish. But what do you do now with the Galatians who are Gentiles who have become Christians? Should they become Jewish and obey Old Testament laws and follow all uh, the Jewish traditions? Now, if you ask the circumcision party, they hold to Judaism secretly. And they are going to insist that, yes, they should get circumcised, follow the tradition and laws of the Jewish people so that they are considered clean. That's what Judaism would teach. But these Gentile Christians, however, they obey the command of Christ. They have put their trust in the gospel, but they did not obey Jewish laws in the same way the Jews did. They did not hold on to the rituals and traditions that the Pharisees have been teaching. And so these new worshippers of God came in not as Jewish practicing, uh, sorry, people practicing Jewish things. They came in as Christians who follow the commandments of Jesus. So when Peter had joined them in table fellowship, shared meals with them, they would have eaten food that the Jews would consider unclean, but they would not consider it wrong because they know it is not food that makes someone unclean. Jesus said that. Yet here, Peter, or Cephas, was worried when this group from Jerusalem who holds to these traditions, who are holier than thou, they came along. Because Peter was thinking, what would they think of me as I am living as if I'm a Gentile and not a Jew. You see? And it is because of this, he withdraw from fellowship with them and most probably sat with them, the Jewish Christians only, for the makan. So he was avoiding table fellowship with Gentile Christians so that there'd be no doubts on his ministry by the circumcision party. At one hand, this seems very politically expedient. It's a smart move. But we come to verse 13, and Paul says, And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. What Cephas has done was not something that only affected himself. This was then picked up by other Jewish Christians who followed him. This action then of withdrawing from having meals with the Gentile Christians is condemned by Paul strongly as an act of hypocrisy. And when Barnabas, Paul's companion, followed Cephas in doing the same thing, Paul said Barnabas was led astray. And this indicates right, that Paul is trying to say that this is a big deal. It's not just about who you hang out to makan with. There is implications here. So by not fellowshipping, with the Gentile Christians and withdrawing from them, Cephas is actually treating them as if he believes that they are unclean, right? And this is a big issue because Cephas is an apostle. His actions has consequences because other Christians will look to him for guidance. And so because of his actions, it appears that the church seems to have two different gospels. It gives the impression that these Galatian 
Gentile Christians, despite being made right by the gospel of Jesus Christ, are still unclean, are still unworthy of table fellowship. And so what's the implication? That what Paul has been preaching to these Galatians all along, not complete lah, needs something more. And these people from Jerusalem must be telling them what they need to do to become true Christians, you see? So we see in verse 14, But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentile to live like Jews? So firstly, we see that Paul is saying, this conduct of rejecting the Gentile Jew is not in step with the gospel. Why? Because they're implying Despite being washed by the blood of Christ, the Gentiles are not clean. In other words, by withdrawing fellowships, it makes it seem that there's something lacking in their gospel, as if their salvation is not really complete, and they are not really worthy of being called God's people or to have the fellowship of God's apostle. So this implied then to the Gentile Christians, they needed to have something more than faith in Jesus in order to be accepted as a Christian brother by the Jewish Christian, by the apostles. And if that is true then, this is Paul's point, what is the value in the blood of Christ? Cephas may not mean to say that. He may not mean to say, actually, you need more than Christ to be accepted. But this is the implication of what he has done. So for someone who has preached the gospel, now to behave in this way, you can see why Paul calls him a hypocrite. He preached the gospel, but does not treat those who believe the gospel as part of the family. Instead, he separates from them. And so this is why Paul explains to Cephas that if Cephas as a Jew originally accepted the Gentile converts, lived with them, shared in the same gospel with them, had fellowship meals with them, and now suddenly he withdraws from them, isn't he indirectly coercing the Gentiles become Jews so that they will be accepted? Indirectly then, Cephas is adding to the gospel. He's implying that faith in Christ alone is not enough. But to be fully accepted by the apostle, now they have to adopt Jewish customs and laws and be considered clean under them. So friends, adding extra clauses to the gospel is a serious matter. And so this is why Pete Paul goes to great pains to explain to Cephas exactly why he is wrong in acting as he did. Then we see verse 15 and 16. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentiles in us. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have belief in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So he speaks now to Cephas, one Jew to another, both preaching the same gospel. And he points out, yes, he and Cephas are Jews by birth. Yes, there are people who know well the Jewish laws and custom. 
Yes, they are different from the Gentiles. They are, the Gentiles were not under the law. And through a Jewish perspective, if you're not under the law, you're a sinner, right? So that's why the Gentiles are called Gentile sinners here. He's speaking from the perspective of a law-observing Jew. Yet, after saying all of this, he points out, right? Despite all this advantage that we have as Jew, they themselves do not come to salvation through the Jewish adherence to the law. Both Paul and Cephas definitely acknowledge that they are saved only through faith in Jesus. Thus, through relying on fulfilling this law, they will both agree. No one can be justified through that. Right? And now this term justified is an important term. It's borrowed from the formal language of the courts in that time. So in simpler terms, justification is like a legal declaration that this person is right with God. Right? The, he's justified. And this leads to salvation. So we are saved because we are justified. We are declared to be right with God. And that's the point that Paul is asking here. Are we, A, made right with God because we sit under the law and we find ourselves innocent of any charge of breaking the law? Or, B, are we made right because even though we have broken the law, Christ has paid for our sins and now we are declared to no longer have the sentence of punishment over our head because of what Christ has done. Of course, see first, no. The right answer is we are justified by Christ. So Cephas, by doing what he has done, pressuring the Gentiles to come back to the law indirectly, is actually undermining the gospel's promise of justification by the blood of Christ. And instead, he's giving the message to the Gentile, you need to come under the law because clean and unclean matters. So if Cephas knew justification came from Christ and not from his ability to fulfill the law, then why is Cephas acting as if he's justified by the law? Why is he caring about clean and unclean even to the point of terminating fellowship with the Gentiles? The condemnation of the law of Moses that says a person is not right with God because they have broken the law should not be applied to Christians because they are already under the blood of Jesus that has paid for their sins. The debt is paid by Jesus. So to do this then, to treat them as unclean, is to insult the power of the cross of Christ. This is what Paul is asking him here to help him see the foolishness of what he is doing. Then he continues his argument by using a rhetorical form in verse 17. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. So Paul's argument that he's making here is he's saying, right? If, right? Just like Allah. If a Jewish Christian, right, who puts their trust in Christ, and because he trusts in Christ, he follows the gospel, he now comes to fellowship with Gentile Christians, his brother in Christ, right? But 
under the law of Moses, they are participating in unclean things and they would be considered sinning. So, is Christ to be blamed for leading them to sin? They are fellowshipping with this unclean Gentile because of the gospel, right? And who asked them to follow the gospel? Jesus. So, Paul makes it clear. The answer is, of course not lah. Christ is not someone who promotes his sin. This justification that comes from Christ supersedes the condemnation of the law. So if we make this argument, right? we say, oh, you're Christian but you're not clean because you don't follow the law of Moses, then we apply judgment, right? Or you didn't apply the law, you're unclean, you're cut off. Then we are saying that then Christ must be someone who leads people to a life of sin. Lah. Because what does Christ do? He brings people to put their trust in Him and not the law. Right? He offers justification by trusting in His work at the cross. Christ doesn't say, go follow the law. Sit under the law. Fulfill everything in the law. So if Christ doesn't do that, then we shouldn't act as if Salvation comes under the law. So we realize now what a terrifying thing that Cephas has done. He has insulted the cross. Then we come, in verse, uh, then we come to verse 18. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So Paul continues this hypothetical scenario, right? And he said, let's say, uh, let's say I reject salvation comes from Christ. I turn back to what I last time say, don't do. I come back to the law. Right? Okay, Pasang, okay, I live under the law, right? Now, I must fulfill the law of Moses completely. Then, that's how I find salvation. What happens? Well, under the law of Moses, he will not find salvation because he is a transgressor. And so is every other mere human being. Because we are sinners, we can never fulfill the law to be deemed righteous by it. So Paul says, if I go back to what I tore down, I have no choice. I have to accept the condemnation of the judgment that comes from being under the law because I've rejected being justified through Christ. And then we see in verse 19, right? For though the law, sorry, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And the implication of this is that through the law, he's revealed to be under judgment the punishment of death because he is unable to keep the law. So because he, he only finds death under the law, he can no longer accept the law as a reasonable way for him to find salvation by any means. Only death is there for him. So he has to reject the law or die to the law, right? Or take in the punishment of the law and die so that he can find some other way to live and be right with God. So how can you die to the law and be right with God? Verse 20, he gives the solution. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. He is now united with Christ, through faith. What he originally said, that if I reject this, I go to the law, 
I die. So now he comes back. What does this mean? Who he is, his sins, his failures, his past, is put on that cross, nailed together with Christ. It dies there, under the judgment of the law. The person who he is now is the Paul who within lives Christ in his heart through faith. United. So his flesh now is lived for the sake of Christ, not for his own goals and agenda. And he does this because Christ has so loved him and gave himself for Paul at the cross. So he says while he's free from the law, he is not free to sin because he is under Christ. And so he comes to verse 21 and he ends by saying, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This then is the summary and thesis statement of his argument of why he is right and Cephas is wrong. He does not nullify the grace of God by thinking that righteousness can ever come through the law. Because if he does that, like what Cephas has accidentally implied, when Cephas nullified the gospel message by removing fellowship, then Christ has died for no purpose. And friends, what he's pointing out here, what's happening here is this is that other gospel that we read in Galatians chapter 1. The one that Paul scolded the Galatians of deserting to. This is the reason why this letter to the Galatians were written. They were thinking, they were preaching this message that tried to bring people back under the law to think of clean and unclean, to think of doing this and fulfilling that. And in the weeks to come, we will unpack more of this. But for today, what do we learn from this passage that speaks to us? Now, the most important thing is for us to really, really understand that justification means being made right with God and that comes only through faith in Christ. We cannot then turn back to law obedience because that nullifies that faith in Christ. And it moves us to say, have faith in your own good works and that cannot save you. So we want to be careful of how we find confidence in salvation. Do we solely trust in Christ and not in the good things that we do? Even if it's commended by the law, not trusting in the goodness of our heart. So, for example, don't think you come, you take communion, ah, I'm safe now. Don't think serving in the choir, coming to church every week, being servant-hearted, being godly, ah, this is what saves me. No. Of course, these are good things. We want to do them to please God, but have the right mindset. Only faith in Christ saves. So if you understand that rightly, you won't accidentally twist the gospel and you will hold on to the right gospel and not go to the other side. Now, the second point is we shouldn't cause divisions by rejecting fellowship with other gospel-believing Christians just because their traditions are different. Let me give an example. 
when we look at the contemporary smack service, sometimes we can get a little uncomfortable because they're different from us here at the liturgical services. They come to service sometimes wearing shorts. Some will wear sandals. The music is not a choir and organ. They have drums and electric guitar. They drink coffee during the sermon. They sing modern worship songs, not the evergreen hymns that we sing. So we need to ask, how do we respond? Do we treat them as lesser Christian by saying, hey, you don't show respect to God, like, don't feel comfortable talking to you, reject fellowship with you? Would we say, oh, I would never acknowledge what they're doing as true worship. I wouldn't join the service. That's not worshipping God. And you reject them, reject their fellowship. Now, if we do that, we are actually imposing something on them on top of the gospel. Right? So if we reject them on the basis of the superficial differences, the different traditions, then actually it shows us that we have made up our own laws and then we apply it to them. And on the basis, well, you don't do this, you don't do this, you don't do this, we reject fellowship. As if we are clean, they are unclean. So you see how similar this is to the issue that we saw today, right? Now, obviously, no one who disagrees with the contemporary service worship uh, and don't want to have fellowship with them actually intend to cheapen the blood of Christ, to insult the cross, right? But unintentionally, that is what we imply when we reject fellowship among Christians based on certain rules and traditions that we hold to rather than looking to the gospel. And in fact, this might even reveal to us that we might have thought these extra things are required because we have accepted these rules. This is the traditions. This is how I grew up. This is how I've been taught. And you must follow this in order to be true worshippers of God. So we need to be careful. Because if you hold that, then Paul will ask the same thing that he asked he first to you, right? Are we justified by faith in Christ alone? Or have we tacked on something else on top of the gospel? So you see, it's a dangerous place to be in. And that's why I'm giving this caution, though I am concerned like, that I might offend some sensitivities with this point, right? But don't worry, when I preach in smack next week, I'm going to say the same thing to them in the other way, right? Because they too must see. They must not reject fellowship on the basis of different traditions. They must see you all, as their brothers and sisters, even if they choose to worship with a different way. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with preferring a liturgical service over a contemporary one. There are a lot of things to commend our scripture-filled liturgy to us. Singing the great hymns of the faith, accompanied by the pipe organ and the choir, is very edifying. So we don't have to like the contemporary service. We may have critique about the things that they do. We may choose that we never want to attend. I don't feel comfortable. We can argue even with them about the wisdom of certain things they're doing. 
So for example, it can be right to suggest if you're wearing short pants, aren't you worried people might be distracted? If you're playing the guitar and drum very loud, doesn't that drown congregational singing? We're supposed to sing together, right? So it's not wrong to raise up these points. But what we want to see is what they are doing is centered on the gospel, based on the scripture, obedient to Christ, and their conscience is clean about them doing these things, then we cannot presume on what their hearts are feeling, how they are worshipping God, and we cannot use that then as a basis to withdraw our fellowship from them. So we have to balance our criticism, which we give for their good, with our ability then to affirm fellowship with them, even if they practice things differently. So let us be careful. Let us seek to preserve the unity in the gospel. Because even though we might hold to different traditions, we are saved by that one true gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, help us to trust in Jesus and rely on him alone for our salvation. And Father, if there are things in our heart that secretly we take pride in as things that saves us, take it away from us, Lord. Help us to see that it is only by relying on Jesus do we come to salvation. Help us to see, Father, that all these good things that we do for church, it pleases you, but don't let us confuse that with things that saves us. So let us then, Father, rejoice in the gospel and look for things that are in common with others who hold that same gospel and love them as our brothers and sisters so that our unity in the gospel will please you. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.